if you're thinking of vacation, I would like to recommend a place to you. Um, maybe you should think about going to Darwin, Minnesota. Uh, it's not that hard to get to. You just go to the Twin Cities. <laughs> ben Knox, like, yeah, Minnesota. He's got his Vikings jersey on. He's got his AD jersey on. Is that what you're wearing there? No? No, there well. Um, so uh, if you go to Darwin, Minnesota, what you do is you go to the Twin Cities and you make a left, uh, go west on 12, about 60 miles to the place uh, you'll get there, Darwin, Minnesota, population 276. And while you're in Darwin, you should probably stop at the town's most famous tourist attraction. It is the world's largest ball of twine, uh, which was rolled up by one man, Francis Johnson. Uh, this is from, uh, that is 12 feet tall. Uh, in case you can't tell, Francis is about six foot there. Uh, this is from Roadside America, which is a book that explores all these great tourist attractions. Roadside America says this, Francis A. Johnson was a quiet man who spent his entire life in Meeker County in Minnesota. For reasons that are lost to time, Francis began rolling a ball of twine in his basement in 1950. Francis rolled twine four hours a day, every day. He eventually moved the ball onto his front lawn and used railroad jacks to ensure proper wrapping. Johnson cared about, as much about his ball's roundness as its diameter. For 29 years, this magnificent sphere evolved at Johnson's farm, and he eventually built a circular open-air shed to protect it from the elements. Johnson didn't stop until 1979, so he started in 1950, stopped in 1979. By then, his ball weighed almost 9 tons. That's 18,000 pounds in real money, and was uh, 12 feet wide. He died of emphysema, and the town figured that nearly 30 years of twine dust killed him. That's not funny. You people are sick. But Darwin was also proud of Johnson and somehow rolled his big ball next to the water tower. And today it's enclosed in a gazebo. It's protected on all sides by plexiglass. But if you so desire, you can walk right up and see the entire life's work of one man, Francis Johnson. This is the legacy he left to the world and really his singular obsession for most of his life. Now we can laugh and we can joke about what it must be like to be obsessed with rolling this giant ball of twine or collecting or amassing the largest amount of anything. But really, here's, here's the idea for the day. All of us have a life that has a focus or a purpose or an aim. What's yours? You know, we're, so that's at the crux of the question today. We're going to uh, see Jesus ask his would-be disciples as we kick off our series called In the Flesh. We kind of kicked it off last week, but it's our first week with a graphic. It's our first week with a new stage. So really, this is the week. Plus, 12 weeks sounds better than 13 weeks. So we're kicking it off today. We're just drawing a line in the sand. Today, we're starting In the Flesh. What we're doing over these 12 weeks, we're looking at the man, Jesus. Uh, the Apostle John said that he was one with God in the beginning, that he was God, and that he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And as a man... As a person, Jesus had to make decisions, just like you and I have to make decisions. Jesus had to set priorities, just like you and I have to have priorities. I mean, at the, from the start of his ministry until the end of his time on earth, he only had three and a half, maybe four years. And so he had to be intentional in every step he took. And so what we're doing is we're, right, we're taking this fall and we're retracing, retracing the steps of Jesus that he made in his life. And we're going to use um, throughout this series this map. We did this a couple years ago, and it was really helpful for some people. Uh, we got a bigger one this time, so hopefully you'll be able to see it a lot better. But last week, we talked about the beginning of Jesus' life. If you were here, you remember we turned the entire auditorium into a map, kind of. Um, and uh, we started our story in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. 
his family stayed there for one or two years in Bethlehem, probably, uh, probably about two years. And then they got uh, a message from an angel, a message from God through an angel that warned them that they had to move to Egypt. Egypt's down here, so just pretend. They moved to Egypt, and they fled there to get away from Herod. And then uh, God sent another angel in a dream to Joseph to say, hey, Herod has died. It's safe to come back. So they start to come back to Bethlehem, but then they find out that Herod's son is actually over this area. And so they move up to this place called Nazareth up in the north of Israel. And that's where Jesus grew up, and that's where he learned his trade, and that's where he learned the scriptures. And uh, I'm going to come back up here for a minute because that's where he spent, as far as we know, most of his childhood. When people meet Jesus, and we'll see that in the scripture today, uh, he is from Nazareth. And so that's where he spent most of his, um, certainly his uh, childhood and teenage years. But when we see him as an adult, we first see him show up down here on the Jordan River near a place called Bethany. Uh, and he's being baptized. That's what we talked about last week. We celebrated baptisms here. Um, we had 11 across both of our campuses, but we talked about Jesus being baptized, and we said that Jesus um, was baptized out of obedience, that he was the most obedient man who ever lived. And we said, why was Jesus obedient? Well, he was obedient because he understood who he was, his identity, and he understood what he was here for, his mission. And so I'm convinced, I told you this last week, and I told you I'd explain it this week. Um, if you were here, you may remember that. That if not by the moment of his baptism, then 40 days later when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, uh, out of the desert, he had a firm grasp on his identity and his mission in life. Why do I think that? Well, I'll tell you that in a minute. So since his baptism kicked off his ministry, what does Jesus do next? Uh, if you're going to kick off a ministry, here's what you should do. You get your closest followers together. Uh, you go away for a three-day strategic retreat. You start to brainstorm ideas and where you're going to go over this ministry for the next three years. So that's what Jesus did. No, that's not what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He got baptized. He was blessed by his father and immediately he followed the Holy Spirit. That, what a great example for us. Isn't that a great example? The Bible says he was baptized, that God spoke to him from heaven and then Jesus followed the Holy Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. And he spent 40 days in this desert. This is the Judean wilderness. This is what the desert that Jesus would have spent time in probably looked like. There is not a sign of life. It is barren. It is dead. But Jesus followed the Holy Spirit there. Like the Holy Spirit led them there. And we said last week that sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead us to places that we don't really want to go. It will lead us into desert places. But Jesus was obedient in this. He followed the Holy Spirit into the desert. Now, uh, he was tempted here by Satan for 40 days. It was hot, it was dry, there was no shelter. Jesus became thirsty, uh, he became hungry, he became tired. In his humanity, he faced all of the same temptations that you and I would face in a hot, dry desert. The temptation to eat something, the temptation to drink something, to find something, anything to drink, even if there were strings attached. He faced the temptation to find the fastest way out. And that's what we do sometimes. When we're led into a desert, we wanna find the fastest way out, but that's not what Jesus did. Instead, what did he do when he was in the desert? Well, he was reciting scripture and praying. We know that because when Satan came and tempted him, what did he do? He recited scripture back at Satan, right? Because he was spending 40 days in, in the word. Uh, Satan came to tempt him to offer him food, to offer him power, and Jesus recited, recited scripture right back at him. Something else likely happened in the wilderness. And this is why I'm convinced that by the time Jesus got out of the 40 days in the desert, he understood his mission and he understood his identity. Uh, it's something, there's a rabbinical teaching method called stringing pearls. 
And stringing pearls is how a lot of rabbis taught in that day, and it's how a lot of young men learn scripture. And uh, it's something like this. You would start speaking a passage, and then the student would have to finish it. Okay, and then once they got that, you would start and speak less of the passage. So, example, if I were going to teach you Psalm 27.1, if I were a rabbi and you were a student, um, Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I might say to you, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And then you would say, And I would say, That's great. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Yeah, and so you'd go on, right? And then I'd say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And so then we get to a point where I could just start the verse and you would be able to finish it because you're a good student. And as you grow in scripture, they didn't have a lot of written copies of the scripture at the time. And so a lot of this was passed down by word of mouth. And so what would happen is a rabbi would teach students scripture like that. Now, when Jesus was baptized, it said the clouds parted. And a voice came from heaven, and it said, This is my son, whom I loved. With you I'm well pleased. And we hear that, and we think that's a great blessing. And it is. It's a great blessing from God. But what the Lord could have been doing, uh, what many scholars think he was doing, was stringing pearls there. And if you were to go back to the Old Testament, you'll find those three statements tied to three critical verses in the Old Testament. So this is my son. Psalm 2-7 said, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. This is a, uh, a uh, messianic prophecy about the Messiah who was to come. And so when this voice from heaven says, you are my son, that's the start of that verse or a part of that verse. And then um, he says, whom I love, my beloved son. In Genesis 22, two, uh, this is about God speaking to um, Abraham. And it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now imagine being Jesus and hearing that part of that verse and going back through scripture and thinking, okay, what did that verse say? What did that passage say? And then you remember that that's about Abraham and Isaac and Isaac being sacrificed or attempted, Abraham uh, being told to go sacrifice Isaac. And that had to be a bit of a wake-up call for Jesus, right? And then he said, um, this is my son who I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And that would point to Isaiah 42.1, which says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight well pleased who I delight, I will put my spirit on him and I will bring justice to the nations. And I have to imagine that over the 40 days in the desert that those verses are going, those pieces of scripture are going over and over again in Jesus's mind. So as a young man, Jesus would have studied those scriptures. And even if he didn't get the meaning right when he was baptized and his father spoke those words into him, um, what his father was trying to tell him at his baptism, then certainly after spending 40 days alone in the desert with this blessing ringing in his ears, he would have known his identity. Can you see how he could have come out of the desert understanding his identity now? We can be pretty confident that by this point in his life and ministry, he understands who he is and what his mission is. And soon he won't be the other, only one as we're gonna see from this next interaction. So if you have your Bibles open, John 1 uh, verse 29 is where we're gonna start. The next day, now what's the next day? The next day is the day after Jesus comes out of the wilderness. So here's what's happened so far. Jesus shows up at the Jordan River. He's baptized 30 years old. That's day one. He immediately follows the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He spends 40 days there, so that's 41 days. The next day, this is day 42 of Jesus' ministry. Right? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John the Baptist says, This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, did you notice this? That while Jesus was away, remember, John the Baptist is the one that baptized Jesus, that we know that he heard or he saw this the sky open up and a voice come from heaven, right? We, John 1 earlier tells us that. We know that that happened. While Jesus was in the wilderness, John was talking to his followers about Jesus. Did you catch that? He said, this is the one I was talking about when I said, there's another who comes after me who surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 31, he says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So check this out. John the Baptist didn't know who the Messiah was until he baptized Jesus and the sky opened up. That's what the scripture says. He says, the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he, the Messiah, might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John says, I have seen and testify that this, Jesus, that this is God's chosen one. Now the next day, Day 43, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So the next day, same thing happens. Look, the Lamb of God. So see what John's doing. He's built this whole ministry. He's built this movement of people with this message. And John's message was always repent and be baptized for their forgiveness of sins. He's been preaching that message in this area of the wilderness. John's a little bit unique as a preacher, right? He wears fur in the desert or leather, depending on how you translate that. He goes around eating locusts and honey. Um, but he's built this following of people who are looking for the Messiah. And he's got this number of followers. We don't know how many, but we do know that he's baptizing people daily. We see at least two days where he's three days where he's down there baptizing people. But now he starts taking his own followers and pointing them to Jesus. Hey, don't follow me. Follow that guy. That's the Lamb of God. He's the one that takes away the sins of the world. And what we're going to see next is Jesus picking up the baton from John and starting his ministry off by asking this question, this very first question we ever see Jesus asking in his ministry. And it seems so innocuous when you read it. You don't really get the full... Um, effect, but we're going to get the whole full effect here. John 1, uh, 37 says uh, this at the end. Um, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Oh, wait, this, that's the wrong verse, sorry. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Um, now, disciples in that day literally followed or walked behind the man that was their chosen as their rabbi or their teacher. And so in John's record here, uh, this term for following moves from a literal following, like following in his footsteps, to more of a figurative sense. Uh, basically, they're very curious. There's, there's nothing like they've experienced before in Jesus. They're hungry, and they may have just encountered the one which the scriptures have been teaching them about. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following, and here's the question. He asked this, what do you want? Isn't that brilliant? What do you want? Now, Read the rest of the verse. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. What do you want? That's the first question we see Jesus asking as an adult. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? When you read it like that, um, it maybe sounds like a parent who's a little bit short with their kid, right? What do you want? Or maybe it's like a, a, a teller at a bank or a cashier at a fast food place. What do you want? 
how can I help you? I mean, it's almost like that. But when you look a little deeper, what you see is this word that's translated here as want is usually translated as the word seek. What do you seek? And the actual meaning, the word, you probably know this, is the Greek word zeteo. Uh, we spell it Z-E-T-E-O, Zeteo. And the uh, translation, most of the time in the New Testament, is translated as uh, seeking, but it's not just seeking like something you're looking for. It's seeking to find. What are you seeking to find? The implication in Jesus' question here is that we can really only be looking for one thing at a time. Now, I think Jesus would make an exception um, for moms with multiple kids. Because you guys can find everything all at once. You know where everything is at the same time. Shin guards and ballet slippers, same time. I can find those, all right? But for most of us, for most people, we can only be looking for one thing at a time. I'll give you an example. You're walking through your house. You're thinking, okay, I've got to go down and get the thing. And you get halfway down the steps and you see that your kid has dropped uh, two dirty socks on the stairs where you told him not to stop because then the dog will eat them and the dog will swallow them and the dog will poop them out in the yard and you don't want that. And so you pick, stop and pick up the socks and you take them back up to the laundry room and you think, why was I down there again? Has that ever happened to anybody? Any amens in the room? So um, that happens to me every once in a while. And because, why? Because you can only be looking for one thing at a time, right? You forget what you were looking for. Or I'll give you another example. How many people have a watch? How many of you have a watch on? Raise your hand if you have a watch. All right, good. There's enough people in the room. We can do this. All right, so don't look at your watch. Can you tell me, um, is your watch digital or does it have hands? You don't have to answer me. Is it digital or have hands? If it's digital, uh, what, what color is it? What color are the numbers? Uh, what, what do you see when you look at your watch? What's on the face? If it's, uh, if it's uh, analog, um, what, does it have numbers or does it have Roman numerals or does it have just little dashes? Do you know? Does it have circles or lines? Uh, what color are the hands? What color is the background? How many times a day do you look at your watch? A lot, right? Can you answer all those questions? Hey, look at your watch real quick and see if you're right. Were you right? Did you, did you miss something? Okay, how many of you have watches again? Can any of you tell me what time it is? You just looked at your watch. But you can only look for one thing at a time, can't you? And so even when you're looking at your watch, it's got your time on the face. Most people can't recite the time back. You can only look for one thing at a time. What are you seeking to find? This is such a brilliant question from Jesus. It's it's really the eternal question. And it's a question we all have to answer. It's, it drives our behavior. It, it's the motivation for our actions. And so let me ask you this today. If Jesus were here right now, if you're standing here right now, and he asked you that question, what are you seeking to find? How would you answer him? If you answered him honestly, how would you answer him? What's the, what's the aim of your life? What do you seek in your life? Is it, is it money? Is it a relationship? Is it passion or power? Or maybe it's peace in the way that you see it, absence of conflict, absence of pain. Maybe it's adventure. Maybe it's a healthy body or a fit body. Maybe it's to be a high fashion, a fashion plate. Maybe it's a beautiful home or a great car. Some of us are building with our lives these really, really impressive balls of twine that are so big And they might be so impressive to the outside world. But in the end, in 50 and 100 years, people are going to laugh at our obsession. They're going to make fun of us for our obsession. And they're not going to leave the legacy that the Bible promises to those who pursue God. A a legacy of faithfulness to the 10th generation. So what is it for you? 
What are you aiming for? What, what's your central motivation? What is it that you are seeking to find? And then let me ask you one other question. You got that in your mind? If Jesus were here, what, he asked you, what are you seeking? You've got that in your mind? Let me ask you another question. How's that working out for you? Is it bringing you the happiness that you always hoped it would? Are you finding purpose in your work? Are you satisfied because of what you're accumulating? Or are the things that you've been pursuing, are they letting you down? Are you getting to the end of this giant ball of twine and realizing it isn't really bringing me the joy that I thought it would? I know many of you know my story that I, for a long time I worked uh, for myself. I was working in corporate America and I was trying to build my own kingdom and my the aim of my life, the thing I was seeking to find was more. That was my story. I wanted more. No matter how much influence I got, I wanted more. No matter how much money I made, I wanted more. And I realized that while I wasn't miserable with my life, I had a great life, but I didn't have any purpose. And I needed to find that purpose. And I knew, and I had several people, several really smart, good people that I'm very thankful for right now that pointed my life to Jesus and said, hey, this is the only place you're gonna find purpose, eternal purpose. What are you hoping to find? All throughout scripture, we see people trying to answer this question. Uh, this is, seems to be the question that every person in scripture is trying to answer. In Psalm 27, four, we see David, the great King David, trying to answer this question. What's the one thing you seek? David says this in Psalm 27, four, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For David, that was the one thing that he was seeking with his life. You know, Paul, the apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says it this way. He, he talks about this. He says, the very credentials these people are waving around is something special. I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. This is from the message, by the way. I love this translation of this passage. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. It's dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so that I could know Christ personally. There's Paul's Zeteo, to know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering. Those two go together, by the way, power and suffering and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it, Paul said. And even John the Baptist, John the Baptist, who's such a central figure in our story today, had this Zetea. Look back in John 1.31. He said this, I myself did not know him, did not know the Messiah, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. The purpose of John's life was to point people to Jesus. We don't just see it in John, though. We see it in his disciples, too. Uh, look at this in John 138. If you, if you go back, John 138 says, turning around, they saw Jesus, uh, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? There's that brilliant question. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went to where he was staying. They spent the day with him. Now, remember this. That's gonna be key because they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So really, uh, four to six, four to seven, that would have been the day. So two to three hours they spent with Jesus. And then watch what happens. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two 
that had heard John. And so um, the two disciples that follow Jesus into the, uh, to go spend some time with him were probably Andrew and the, the one who would become the apostle John, the one who's writing, because John never mentions himself firsthand. He always calls himself the other disciple or the, uh, later the disciple Jesus loved. And so we see in the scripture, he says, Andrew and the other disciple, he's talking about himself. So Andrew and John are the two that went away with him. And when he comes out, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the ones who heard what John had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did when he came out, out with time with Jesus was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found what we're seeking to find. We have found the Messiah that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. He brought his brother to Jesus because that's what you do when you find something that changes your life is you bring other people to see it. You wanna tell the people who are most important to you, right? Now I wanna show you one other example of this from the same exchange, yeah, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to Philip, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found, what was he looking for? We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, to, uh, to Nathanael, this was good news and bad news <laughs> because Nathanael and Philip had the same zateo. They were searching for the same person. We have found the one that the prophets wrote about. We found the one that Moses talked about, right? But look at what Nathaniel's answer is. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Remember, Nazareth is this little town way up in the north. And actually, this is really close to an area called Samaria. And the Jews, good Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. You know, we'll hear about that later. So this is up here in this area that's a little bit iffy. It's a little bit questionable. It's like, Gary, can anything good come from Gary? If you're from Gary, I'm sorry. But you're gonna see this story ends well for you, Okay. Nathaniel's skeptical. And I just want to say, um, by the way, this is what we can expect when we tell people who don't understand Jesus about Jesus. We can expect them to be skeptical. Our friends can be skeptical. But look at how Philip answers him. Come and see. Come and see, says Philip. Now remember, Jesus, when he, when they said, uh, he said, what do you want? And they said, where are you staying? What did Jesus say? He said, come and see. And then when Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip just says, come and see. Like, don't, don't take my word for it. Experience it for yourself. Come and see, said Philip. Now, verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, a lot of people will take this to say that Jesus had some kind of supernatural knowledge of Nathaniel. That could be true, but more likely it's that Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree and the fig tree has incredible symbolism in Israel. Uh, in Palestine, in ancient days, the fig tree stood for peace, security, rest, and worship. Remember the fig tree was, is what Adam and Eve used to cover up when they found they were naked. It, it stands for security, right? Uh, often men would seek solitude and shade and go to worship under a fig tree. Often when a Jewish man was sitting under a fig tree, what would he be doing? He would be reciting scripture. He would be praying. 
Uh, it was a common place for Jewish men to go and study the scriptures. And so Jesus sees this. He sees that he's reciting the scriptures. He knows that he's seeking for the Messiah right? because um, Philip just told him, hey, we found the one that we were looking for. And so it all starts to come together, right? And, and about the fig tree, Micah 4.4 4 promised that one day everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. So when Nathaniel was sitting under his fig tree, most likely contemplating life, reading, praying, thinking about this Messiah, then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. What was Nathaniel's Zeteo? What was he seeking to find? Same thing, he was looking for Jesus. He just didn't know it yet. And for some of you in this room, you came here today because you're looking for something. Maybe you've got a lot, or maybe you've got a little. But you come to a place like Genesis hoping to find your way back to God. And maybe you don't even know what that means, but Nathaniel would tell you that God's chosen one who came to reconcile the world to himself, who came to die on our behalf, who came to restore all things, is the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus, even Jesus in his humanity... You know, likely knowing that his time on earth was short, knowing that he had a lot to accomplish in just a little time, that his aim, his zeteo was laser focused. He knew exactly what he was seeking to find. And he knew exactly what we should seek to find. In fact, in Matthew 6.33, we see him say in his very first recorded sermon, he uses the very same word zeteo again when he said, but seek, that word seek is zeteo, but Zeteo first, his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. But what does that mean for us? Well, if you're already a Christian, maybe you're still seeking power or money or relationships or influence or other things that may even be good things. Jesus said that these should never be the primary pursuit of our lives, that we need to seek first God's kingdom and God's glory. If we seek God's kingdom first and bring him glory, then all other things will fall into their proper place. And you have to remember, this comes from a real man who had real priorities just like us. And if, if you're not a Christian, I just want you to look back at the invitation that Jesus had for Philip and, and for John and that, that Philip made to Nathaniel. Come and see. That's really what we're inviting you to do over these next 11 weeks now. Would you just join us? Come study Jesus with us. Even if you think you know who he is, would you just come and see what scripture has to say about him? Would you consider joining one of our connection groups and studying his life with others, not just here on Sunday mornings, but in another time as well? People who can help you grow in your faith. Would you pick up a reading plan at the Info Hub? We've got a 12-week reading plan that goes with this uh, series or check it out on the app and read for yourself. Read for yourself. Come and see this man named Jesus. Let's just spend the next three months seeking God's kingdom first and see if it doesn't make all the difference in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm uh, so thankful for this story and this example that we get from just this consistent message from Jesus and from Andrew and from Philip and from John the Baptist that what we're seeking first and foremost needs to be your kingdom and your glory and your son Jesus. And we thank you that you've, you, you sent him here and he came not just to die for us, what a great gift that is to sacrifice his life for us, but Lord, to live his life for us and to give us that example of how we can live and how we can help others find their way back to you. 
Lord, help us to do that. Even this week, help us to come and see and see the places that you're working in our life that we don't even see and see the things that the gifts that you've given us that we don't even recognize. Lord, help us to seek your kingdom first above all other things. We pray this in Jesus' name.